She was an interesting person and pretty captivating to a lot of people. I mean, she just had so much hate for her family. I mean, for me, uh, the DNA just really stood out that it wasn't Yen Soaring's. In 1990, Yen Soaring was convicted in the brutal murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem, the parents of his girlfriend, Elizabeth. But DNA testing done in 2009 suggested something very different happened the night the Hasems were murdered and raised the possibility of two unidentified men at the murder scene. But Bedford officials refused to take another look at the case. And Elizabeth Hasem is just as adamant about Yen's guilt. It's a stalemate that's led to finger pointing between law enforcement officials. To me, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this one out. I think it boils down to personalities, and pride and politics. Sheriff Carl Wells led the investigation of the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem. He was the longtime sheriff in Bedford County and still lives there today. And he has no doubts about how the investigation was conducted and the fact that they got the right man, Yen Soaring. I made myself a promise when I took the oath to be sheriff and a police officer that what I testified to in the courtroom I could come home that night, lay down in the bed, and go to sleep. I didn't have to worry about what I said. And I've lived lived by that for 35 years. And I still don't have She'll tell you, I can lay down in the bed and pull the cover up before we cut the light out. Before the room gets dark, I'm snoring. (laughs) I can sleep like a dog, baby, right, right now. When we visited Carl and his wife, Dale, at their home in the summer of 2019, we wanted to ask him if he was familiar with the new DNA evidence that was casting serious shadows of doubt on Yen's guilt. I'm hard-pressed to understand how they're coming up with information that we couldn't come up with, testing the same stuff, evidence, then to now. Do you think, that though, that the development of DNA, I mean, that... The, Obviously, we can do a lot more with tiny samples of blood. Oh, yeah, I can understand that. But I've got a little bit of a problem with blood samples over 30 years. Now, that's where I'm coming from with it. Had they had these tests to run that time when everything was fresh and thing. But if you take blood from me now and test it, and 30 years from now, test, is he going to test the same way it does now? I, you know, I'm fully aware of the fact that they've come up with all kinds of new tests. But I'm also cognizant to the fact that there's a certain amount of deterioration in evidence. And I'm no chemist, and I'm no physics major, so I can't answer that. But... Uh, I've just got a problem with that. He brings up a good point. What does happen to blood evidence over decades? And can you trust DNA test results? We asked the DNA expert from Liberty University, Dr. McClintock. One of the questions the sheriff in Bedford that originally investigated the case brought up was when we asked about DNA, how do we know blood that was collected 30 years ago would test the same way today as it would? How do we know it's not been degraded? I just took scrapings off a floor in a Civil War medical hospital out in Sailors Creek. And the samples are 152 years old. Now, 
blood typing we weren't able to do, but we were able to generate DNA profiles. And they were all males. They were all soldiers that were treated at this facility 152 years ago. And those were not stored under proper conditions. So it is plausible. Carl Wells retired from the sheriff's office in Bedford years ago, so retesting evidence isn't up to him. But Ricky Gardner could help. He was the rookie detective in 1985, partnered with Chuck Reed as the lead investigators in the Hasem murders. It was Ricky's first homicide investigation, and he was the one who flew to England to get Yen's confession. He's now a major in the Bedford County Sheriff's Office, and over the years he's given lectures at local colleges about the case, and he's been known to carry evidence from the Hasem murders in his briefcase. Ricky declined to do an interview with us, but in an email exchange he said he remains convinced the right people were convicted for the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem. His former partner, Chuck Reed, has come to a different conclusion about the case, and he's frustrated that the current Bedford officials, including Ricky Gardner, refuse to take a new look at the evidence. Ricky knows better than this, and I was so surprised. When I worked with Ricky back in the younger days, and that was his first time when he was young, like that, you know, Ricky was, was a sharp little guy. I mean, I just never dawned on me that he would try to block this the way he's doing it. There are other people who could push to reopen the investigation. The bottom line is, Wes Nance, Ricky Gardner, Jim Updike, myself, and all the others, that whether you wear a badge or whether you, you do, do their job as a Commonwealth attorney and judge or anything else, you're sworn to uphold and make sure that there's fair and equal justice here. And... I'm kind of curious how anybody can go to sleep at night. Jim Updike was the prosecutor at Yen's trial and is now a sitting judge in Bedford. We tried to interview him for the story. I'm going to give Judge Updike a call and see if he'd be willing to speak with us about this case. We haven't been able to get him on the phone before now, but maybe today it will happen. Court, how may I help you? Hi, I'm hoping to reach Judge Updike. All right, I can transfer you over to his secretary if you'd like. Oh, that would be great. Thank you. Jim Updike didn't respond to two voicemails or an email, but we did reach the current Bedford prosecutor. Hello, this is Wes Nance. Wes Nance wasn't around during the Hasem murders or Yen's trial, but we wanted to ask him about the evidence from the case and the possibility of doing new DNA testing. Did you ever have the request to reopen the case, and was that a decision, you know, that you considered at any point seriously or, or not? Well, there's not really a way to reopen the case against Mr. Hayes, uh, Mr. Soaring once he's convicted or uh, Ms. Haysom. Um, yeah, I know that representatives of Mr. Soaring uh, had requested that we reopen the investigation, um, but... Uh, we found no reason to do that. Would it would, would that have included retesting um, some of the DNA samples from the original evidence? Well, we discussed that with uh, both representatives from Mr. Soaring and from the lab, um, and uh, unfortunately, the retesting wouldn't necessarily answer the questions we would have had from the case. Albemarle County Sheriff Chip Harding, the man who helped expand the use of DNA in solving crimes in Virginia, was one of the representatives Wes is referring to. 
and he strongly disagrees that nothing new can be discovered. In fact, he says there are over 200 items that could be tested, starting with the kitchen countertop with a large blood streak, a strand of hair found in the bathroom, and cigarette butts found outside. Our argument when we went in and talked to the Commonwealth Attorney is, one, you need to ask for retesting in multiple test sites because we believe you've got an unsolved homicide. We believe that she was involved in it, and we believe it's because of the overkill, she was there, but and she's pled guilty to it. The other defendant says he wasn't there, and the DNA is indicating it's two people we don't know who they are. So we say you ought to reopen this case and ask the lab to retest all this DNA, and we would be glad to assist any way we can on the investigation. I'm willing to be sworn in as a reserve deputy with a with the Bedford County Sheriff's Office and work under the supervision of somebody down there if they want pro bono, and they didn't want to have anything to do with it, any of it. It's not only the question of retesting blood evidence that's created tension between Bedford officials and those who say the case is a miscarriage of justice. There's also the issue of the existence of an FBI profile. Trust me. Trust me. In the weeks right after the Hasten murders, as Ricky and Chuck were following leads and collecting evidence, Sheriff Carl Wells was quoted in the local newspaper, saying he had contacted the FBI to create a profile of the killer. We asked him about that profile. We asked for one, but I'm not positive that we ever got full profile. Chuck says he does remember getting the profile, and it suggested the killer was likely female and close to the family. He says that's how they settled on their first suspect, one of the Hasem son's girlfriends. Prosecutor Updike referenced the findings of the profile in a letter in 1985, but it never came up at Yen's trial, and Yen said he never heard about it. And when Chip Harding tried to get a copy of it in 2017, he couldn't find it in the court file. Fortunately, he knew someone who could help, Stan Lapikas. I retired uh, from the FBI in uh, 98 after 27 years. Stan lives in Chip's neighborhood and used his contacts with the FBI to confirm a profile had indeed been done and identified the likely killer as a female and close to the family. Stan has a theory about why the FBI profile was never brought up. There, there's a, a, a saying we had in the government when you had multiple defendants that the first person under the tree gets all the shade. And you get Elizabeth back here, and they're convinced that they both have something to do with it. They get her to cooperate. She's now going to testify against Soaring that he came down here and committed these violent crimes by himself. Well, as far as the prosecution goes, this is a great beginning, as they say. I mean, we can build our case from here. We've got our star witness. In fact, in a letter Updike wrote to Elizabeth a few months before Yen's trial, he said, quote, Despite the hurried fashion in which I dictated this letter, I hope it finds you in good health. As I stated previously, I very much enjoy receiving your letters and hope that you will continue to write to me. The questions raised by the new DNA evidence might be answered if Bedford County would agree to retest those pieces of evidence. But even though they refuse, there's someone else who might be able to answer some of those questions. Elizabeth Hasem. 
In a handwritten note, she declined our request for an interview, but she did communicate more with another journalist, one who could understand her plight. Yeah, so when I first heard about this case, it definitely triggered a lot of memories for me. Amanda Knox. Two lovers accused of a horrific, brutal knife killing, um, one of whom is a foreign exchange student. They're two, you know, kids who are going to college. Like, there's this whole scandal of, like, kids who are going to college aren't supposed to be committing murder type of thing. And all of that sort of scandal that goes along with that kind of storytelling was present in his story as well as in my story. Amanda spent four years in Italian jail, convicted of brutally murdering her roommate. Her conviction was overturned, and she came home to Seattle, where she now hosts a podcast called The Truth About True Crime. She dedicated a season to Jens and Elizabeth. One thing that I respect about Elizabeth is, you know, I reached out to her and I told her, look, you know, I know that your case has been told a million times. Um, It hasn't been told by someone who's literally been accused of the same thing that you're accused of. Um, And I was like, look, I have nothing. Like, I don't want to talk to you about, like, guilt or innocence. I genuinely just want to talk to you about what it's like to be called this, like, tempestuous, um, this, like, you know, brainwashing manipulator of men. And she was, like, open to that idea. Um, But she also said, you know, If you're talking to Jens, I don't want to talk to you. Since Elizabeth's sentencing in 1987, she's been largely silent and consistent with her story that she's guilty of causing her parents' deaths. Stories that she's telling the world about what happened remain to this day to be very implicating of Jens, um, very uh, sort of like she takes the tact that she didn't, you know, plunge the knife, but she's just as guilty as anyone who did plunge the knife. So she belongs where she is. And she's sort of invested in Yen's also belonging with her in prison. But like, she sort of divorced herself from him in terms of the story that they're telling. Um, Yen's has been defending himself and defending himself. And she has taken this tact of, I'm guilty, but At least I'm, you know, living with myself and my guilt. When she was sent to prison, Elizabeth was in her early 20s. There was no question about her superior intellect, but her behavior had been raising red flags long before her parents were murdered. She was a heavy drug user, admitting to using heroin and LSD, and she told friends and a reporter that she ran away from her boarding school to travel across Europe with a female lover. She also expressed an intense hatred for her parents in conversations with friends at the University of Virginia, and she wrote in diary entries that she wished them dead. So the question is, why did she hate her parents so much? A clue may be found in the photographs that investigators discovered at the Haysom home. They were nude photographs of Elizabeth, taken by her mother. Initially, investigators like Chuck Reed didn't think much of them. To me, it looked like art because we found that Miss Hasem was, as well as Miss Massey and others, she took art classes down on Rivermont Avenue. Well, my wife majored in art for college, so I know how, how the system works. So I, I didn't look at it as a sexual type thing. I looked at it as, as well, you know, maybe it's because it, the way it was taken and the way she was posed from the side, 
It wasn't in any vulgar pictures. It was just from the side. After Elizabeth's arrest, investigators considered sexual abuse as a possible motive. She had made comments to friends that her mother's behavior was inappropriate with her. And Jens said Elizabeth told him that her mother took naked photographs and bathed with her when she was a teenager, and that her father was aware of it. Sheriff Carl Wells said they asked Elizabeth about it after she was arrested. It was a rumor, and we never could come up with anything. She wouldn't admit that there was. Elizabeth wouldn't. And because uh, we had, I had two of the girls at the office sat down with her, and, and Ann was our... Well, she was a secretary there for 40 years. And she got to be a right doggone good interrogator. And she never could get anything out of it. The only thing Ann came back at one day, she'd been back with Irene for an hour. She came back and she says, if it, if it did, she's the best liar I've ever run up on. At her sentencing hearing and Yen's trial, the sexual abuse allegations were brought up, but quickly denied by Elizabeth. It was only in 2016, when the new DNA evidence came out, that Elizabeth spoke out and doubled down on the couple's guilt. She told Richmond reporter Frank Green that she'd been sexually abused by her mother for eight years. And that was the real motive for the murders. She also said her mother had such power over her that she would never have been able to commit the murders herself, and that's why she had Yen's do it. But Elizabeth's connection to the truth has come under question by her own siblings and by a psychologist who examined her after she and Jens were arrested in London in 1986. She was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. We asked a forensic psychologist who's familiar with the case common characteristics of that diagnosis. So there'd be a, a real uh, highly sensitive, high sensitivity to perceive, not necessarily real, but perceived rejection or abandonment with then explosive temper or anger coming out of that. So that if you're in a relationship with that person, it's going to be very unstable. It's going to be characterized by lots of emotional storms and blow-ups. Jeff Frazier has done hundreds of psychological assessments of violent criminals, and we asked him what effects sexual abuse can have on a child. In a woman, sexual abuse alone is rarely manifest later in terms of this level of violence. Jeff says in cases where a woman commits an extreme act of violence, there's usually a trigger that sets off the violence. Drugs, alcohol, a uh, circumstantial thing, uh, and a, a recent humiliation by the, the perpetrator of the abuse, uh, an interaction that was highly charged with that person, any of those things could be the trigger that could evoke this level of violence. There would also be likely in the person's history um, a history of fantasy of, of, of revenge so that it had, been, it had been rehearsed over time where they would have thought about it, rehearsed it, planned it, reenacted it in their mind uh, in preparation for the final incident, which would then come when there was a triggering episode of some sort. In the years after the murders of her parents, Elizabeth's story changed several times. It wasn't just a shifting motive. She gave different descriptions of the murder weapon and her alibi the weekend of the murders. The one thing she's always maintained is her guilt in the murders of her parents and Yen's involvement. So do we take Elizabeth at her word 
that her hatred for her mother and father was the reason for their murders, and that Jens, an 18-year-old obsessively in love with her, who'd only met the Hasems once and had no violent history, nearly decapitated them single-handedly. Or could there have been two other men at the Hasems' home that night, like the DNA tests suggest, who took part in the brutal killings? Next, on Small Town, Big Crime. Several days after that, there's a homicide in Roanoke where the, the victim is dismembered in a very similar kind of stabbing event as happened at the Hasem house. Two men were arrested for a horrific stabbing days after the Hasem murders, not far from their home. Could the cases be related? And where are those men now? Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town, Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself. And if you spot us there, say hello.